Hello and welcome to Roses Radio, Voices Saving Lives. This podcast is presented by Roses in the Ocean, an Australian-based national not-for-profit that's been founded in order to change the way suicide is spoken about, understood and prevented. We hope that by presenting lived experience stories along with the insights and wisdom of the courageous people who share them, we will help to dispel some of the myths about suicide improving the suicide literacy of our communities and contributing to reducing the fear, discrimination and judgement that sadly still inhibits our ability to support others and seek help. At Roses in the Ocean we believe that most suicides are preventable and we need to be able to openly speak about suicide. So please, open your hearts and minds to the possibilities that a deeper understanding of suicide can bring to saving lives. Hello folks, welcome to Roses Radio, I'm Lane Stretton, I hope you're well wherever you are. Well, what can I say about what you're about to experience? It was just a great hour of my life, and I hope it is for you as well. Fascinating, provocative, funny and sensitive are all words that describe this lady. She lives a fearless life, empowering others to find their identity and to live it with transparency with humour and with sensitivity. But it wasn't always like that. She went through some very dark times and places. This is her lived experience. Her name is Claire. Hello folks, we're on Roses Radio and we're with Claire today. We are absolutely delighted to have Claire with us. Thanks for coming, Claire. Oh, thank you, Lane. It's lovely to be doing this. Yeah. Um, your story is an interesting and fascinating story. It starts in England where you were born and where you grew up. Take us back to England. Well, Lane, I was born in 1946, would you believe, which is like Prehistory. That's ca- like we we didn't live in caves, but it was close to that. <laughs> I was one of the first baby boomers. My mum was actually evacuated from London to Reading, which is about hundred miles west west up the Thames, because the buzz bombs were coming over. These these things called buzz bombs were sent from Norway or wherever the Germans were sending them from. And people would hear them go, and if they kept going across, you didn't worry. But if you heard them go, pop, 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 and stop buzzing, you knew that the thing had run out of petrol and was about to fall on your house. Hmm. So my mum was evacuated from London out to Reading in the country just to keep the young mothers safe. So did you experience this? Do you recall um, having that happen in and around the vicinity of you when you were a child? Well, that was when I was born. Okay. So um, so you, a few years later when you might have comprehended that, you were up in Reading and you were a long way away from where that sort of activity was occurring? Um, well, when, I, when my mum and dad came back from... My dad came back from Palestine where he was during the war and my mum was allowed to go back to her house in, in London, the house was just a pile of bricks. So that was the beginning of things. And I grew up through the, the um, post-war depression, rationing, all that kind of thing. And we were billeted in a house. An old man lived downstairs. It was his house, a wooden house. And my first experience of life was in having to be so quiet in walking around the house, I wasn't allowed to ride my tricycle. I can still remember my mum's fear of irritating the man that lived below. And if you irritated the man who lived below, you might get kicked out. Was that the, yes, was that yes, the fear? Yeah. And you'd have nowhere to live. Yeah. Okay. And and I still remember 
he actually tried to evict us. And I remember standing, I must have been four or five, standing behind this varnished thing in a courtroom while my dad stood beside me. And I still don't like the look and smell of varnish. (laughs) But we grew up, um, my brother and I, he was two years older than I, um, at the, when I was eight and my brother was ten, um, we moved to Australia from England. And um, I started my schooling and um, grew up and went through primary school and high school in Queensland. And my first career was teaching, which was dreadful. I was 19 years old. Um, some of the kids that I was trying to teach in year 12 were older than I, and that was the most horrific experience. Had you been trained as a teacher? One, one year teacher training. One year, one year teacher, teacher training, training, and then... Uh, and then stuck in front of a class. OK. <laughs> it, was, it, it was a thing called the uh, Queensland Secondary Special Secondary College Teacher Education. Yeah. They, stuck, they stuck us in front of a class... After one year of teaching, I had no idea what to do. And this is in Brisbane, or is it in far that, north Queensland? Or uh, taught in Rockhampton in, in Rocky. Queensland. Okay, so you're yeah. far north Queensland. Yep. Yeah. Mm. And um, then they stuck me in the army for two years doing national service. I was supposed to go to Vietnam, but um, a week before we flew out, I fell off a big obstacle thing, broke my arm, and couldn't hold a rifle. So they said, "You're no good to us, son." Um, and put me in um, education corps in New Guinea for a bit. But, you know, the, the, the whole story is coloured so much by the fact that I never felt like I should have felt as a boy, uh, a man, and eventually a husband. Um, all I remember of those years was being chronically, constantly bullied at school, never fitting in, never having friends except girlfriends. I had lots of girlfriends. I was fascinated with girls. But I never, had a, I never really had any friends of boys. And I didn't like playing sport. I didn't enjoy doing boy things. Did you feel you couldn't relate to I didn't know how to guys be. Guys or how yeah. to be a guy. I didn't know how to be a guy. Yeah. I didn't know how to speak as a guy. I didn't know how to... To, to act or to just behave or think as, as, a, as, a, as a man, as a, as a male. What's your earliest recollection of that? Like, how young were you when you went, hang on a minute, this, is, this doesn't feel right? I was six. You were six? Six years yeah. old. Okay. I can remember the night that I felt I bit, first felt that way. It was a funny night. My mum was sitting in an armchair, knitting, as she usually was, it was nice and warm in the house. My dad was out, which allowed things to happen. My brother and I <clears throat> decided to put on a show. And um, now I cringe with embarrassment, but at the time it was the most wonderful feeling because my brother and I, the only, really the only time I ever remember playing with him or really associating with him, but we were stark naked. We were dancing the dance of the seven veils. It was, and I, I, can, I can still feel this glorious feeling of um, just being I didn't, free. Is I, it a freedom? A freedom, sense of freedom. yeah. Because yeah. a lot of, I've, I have mentioned this to people and they said, did you feel like a girl? No, I didn't feel like a girl. I didn't, didn't know what girls felt like, but I knew I didn't feel like me. Yeah. It was just a lovely feeling. Yeah. And that, because... That's a very, very common experience with transgendered males that around the age five, six or seven, we start to wonder why we're not like the other kids. Yeah. Mm. Mm. But the trouble was in those days, nobody talked about transgender or anything like that. It, was, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't even conceived of that there might be a difference. Everything was binary. Like yeah. there was boys and there was girls mm. and mm. the boys played with trucks and the girls played with... Barbie dolls or whatever it was at that stage. But um, I remember my feelings from pretty much that time were of shame and secrecy and unhappiness and feeling left out and feeling inadequate right through school. Mm. And 
That's did your parents did your parents recognise this? Did you ever talk to anyone about it, or this was just a an internalised thing for you? Um, it, my parents, I didn't mention it to my parents that I felt like I I didn't feel like I should have felt. Um, it didn't occur to me to talk to them because it wasn't something that you could talk about in those days. But um, the it it led to a situation of bullying through school and um, it got to a point where at the age of 15 I remember very clearly I was riding my bike home from school after having my school hat flushed down the toilet or something awful. It used to happen all the time. I, I had about 10 hats going through high school. <laughs> and kids used to flush them down the toilet all the time. Which must have been very annoying for the school janitor to have to keep yeah. pulling these hats out. And from... my mum and dad for buying new hats. <laughs> it, that was the thing. If you, yeah. if you wanted, and if you if you wanted to pick on somebody, you'd flush their hat down the toilet. <laughs> but um, I, I I clearly remember the the agony and the the unhappiness and the mm. depression and the mm. and I didn't know why. Mm. The in fact. I remember very clearly one day I was riding my bike home from school and there was a chemist shop on the, um, on the corner before I got un- into the road where my house was. And um, I clearly remember desperately wanting to walk into the chemist and buy a big bottle of aspirin to um, make myself feel better or, or um, not feel anything. And I didn't, but I still remember that moment when I first thought of escaping from the, the, the shame and the secrecy and the bullying and all that. Are we talking about suicide? Yeah, we are. At 15 years At of 15 age? At 15 years of okay. age. Okay. That was the first time you remember feeling suicidal? Yes. Yeah, okay. Because I, it was age 15 and I was starting to really get worried about the future. Yeah, how am I going to find a way of navigating this complexity? How can I live with this? How can I, how can I, how can I tolerate the the embarrassment and the humiliation and the bullying and the and the and the and the feelings that I had of being worthless and inadequate and and being ashamed and um, the um, and that that. Feeling never left, and um, that's been a very significant part of my life. And that all that went on for another forty-five something years, because at that stage, right through my life, nobody talked about anything about transgender or gender diversity or anything like that. It was just unknown. Mm. It was still boys are boys and girls are girls. So you became a teacher. Yeah. In Queensland, you're 19 years old, mm. you're living in far north Queensland. Yeah. Um, what was that like for you at, at that period of time? Were you starting to find your independence and move away from the family home or were you still at home at that particular age? Or, um, Well, no, my mum and dad still lived in um, Brisbane, but the age, when I was 17, my mum died and there was some... I remember some very strange circumstances about that. And I'm, even though there isn't any definite evidence, I still believe that my mum suicided. And that was, um, there wasn't really strong evidence that she did suicide, but I've never, I've always um, assumed she did. You never talked to your father about that, or he never. That was a subject that was that, that taboo was, for both of you. That was taboo. No, he was uh, he was unwilling to talk about anything like that. Mm. Mm. But um, his life and I were similar. He remarried three more times. I was married three times. Um, all my dad's wives died. Um, I wasn't as bad as that all my needed in divorce. <laughs> I didn't quite do the, the things the way he did. But um, my dad was obsessed with suicide. Um, it's all he could talk about in his last mm, 10, 15 years. 
Tell me about that. What, what, what do you mean it's all he can talk about? From a personal perspective or yeah. at a philosophical level? Both. Um, he did an awful lot of um, research into suicide methods and um, talked about it constantly because all he wanted to do was go to heaven and be with my mother, his first wife. And it was pretty tough on his subsequent wives because mm. he spoke mm. about that within their presence that you know anything he wanted in life was to go to heaven and, and be with my mother, which was pretty disrespectful to his other wives. But he had... He, he, he was not brave enough to do it because he had a deep abiding suspicion that it might be a sin and that if he did suicide, um, he would not be allowed into heaven so he wouldn't get together with my mum. So that's what stopped him until uh, he died of natural causes at the age of 94. Does that mean by association that he believed that your mother mustn't have suicided? Because if she was in heaven and he feared the fact that it was potentially a sin, that she, if she was there, then it mustn't have been suicide that took her away from him? Logically, um, that sounds very clear, but I don't think he ever really felt logically about it. Mm. It was mm. just a kind of a vague a vague suspicion that it might be a, you know, mm. a sinful thing. Mm. But the poor man, he lived with his own shame. He was, he was a short, tubby, ugly man with a horrible temper. He was the son of a huge, big, six-foot-five, grim, barrel-chested London policeman... <laughs> With a truncheon. My mm. dad still had his truncheon, this mm. great piece of hardwood that would cave you... Crack a few heads. Oh, would, I'm <laughs> sure he cracked a lot of heads. But um, my dad lived with his own shame and he passed that on to my brother and I. My brother hasn't, didn't speak to my dad for over 50 years mm. and hasn't spoken to me for probably 54 years, I think I counted up. Mm. Does he live here in Australia? No, he lives in Cambridge in England. Oh. He's, um, he's a big wheel with the Scott Polar Research Institute. Okay. Um, spent years and years living on South Georgia Island. Um, he actually um, handed over the, the, the population of Goose Green on South Georgia Island, which was the main mm. town, to the Argentinians when they invaded. Right. Fascinating man but just doesn't want anything to do with me. Mm. But the, you know, the, the, the good thing, if you could say that, about my dad dying was that even though it was 94, it finally allowed me to become who I really am, which is my female self. Why did you feel that that permission was needed for you to do that? Why, oh. why did it have to wait until... He'd passed away. My dad would have seen my change from male to female as contemptible, laughable. He would have treated with the absolute disgust. And I, 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 I subconsciously, I could not have withstood that. Mm. Um, even though he and I didn't get on well together and we didn't see much of each other. There was still this thing that, that he's my father and an authority figure and if I, if I came out while he was still alive, he would have just laughed so much I would have gone back into the cupboard again. Right. Um, and was that a fear of rejection or was it a fear of...? of a fear of being laughed at. Right, OK. Um, hmm. Which is, you know, has been, always been a big fear of mine because... To wear female clothing while being thought of as a male is laughable. It's mm. always been laughable. Mm. It's, in fact, it's been a crime. Mm. And, um, but after he died, I actually fed him his lunch. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a little ashamed of the fact that the, the day he died, he was in a, um, 
you know, fairly secure um, ward for dementia. I fed him his lunch that day. <laughs> and I'm a bit embarrassed to say, but I was spooning mashed pumpkin into him. <laughs> Most of it went down the front of him. <laughs> and it was a funny feeling that, like, you know, there was almost a, um, you know, paying back feeling about it, which is not a comfortable feeling, but that's what I was feeling at the time. But you were still there for him, you know, you were, well, you were there right till the end. That's what sometimes amazes me. Mm. The reason my brother didn't speak to my father for all those years, and, you know, if, if my father was still alive, my brother still wouldn't speak to him, was because my father was very English, and English people, English kind of lower middle class people, which um, is a politically incorrect thing to say these days, they did not know how to communicate any kind of feelings or love. I remember my mum said to my dad one time, she said, you never tell me you love me anymore. And my dad said, well, I told you I love you when I married you. I'm not going to keep repeating myself. <laughs> Classic <laughs> English man. Mm, mm. Um, so um, he was never able to... He, I don't think he ever said, I love you, after that marriage day to anybody. He certainly never demonstrated any tenderness or love mm. towards his two boys. Mm. And his, the way men like that communicate with people generally, but particularly their own children is with teasing. Mm. And he could never say, you know, if we, if we built a wall out of blocks or something, he could never say, gee, Tony or Bob, that's my brother, that's a, that's a nice wall. My dad would always say something like, um, well, Tony, you'd make a good bricklayer. You'd make a good bricklayer cry. He was always mm. teasing putting down, belittling. belittling. Mm. There's a good word for it. Mm. And that's how he communicated. Mm. Not because he was a bad person, because that he did not know any language of tenderness or gentleness or love. Which probably came about as a result of his relationship his with his father. His relationship with his father. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And, you know, the, 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 I don't know if it's a sin, but the sins of the fathers are projected onto the, to the sons. Yeah. And um, there was quite strange because um, I lost contact with my brother. He left home when my mum died and I didn't have any contact with him until about four or five years ago. And um, my then father-in-law said to me one day, oh, I, I um, had an interesting conversation the other day. My father-in-law has a friend who occasionally went down to Antarctica just for a tour to see what's down there and as a different kind of holiday. And he came back one time and he said, he said to my father-in-law, you've got to go down and have a trip and a tour of Antarctica and especially make sure you get the particular tour guide that I had. He said he, said he was about seven foot tall massively bearded, told the most wonderful stories, drank like a bloody fish, <laughs> mostly red wine, and was gay as a row of tents. And apparently this, this person that he was talking about was really, really popular with tourists and tour companies, things just because he's such a character. And my father-in-law said, oh, okay, what was his name? And they said, oh, I think his last name was Headland. My father-in-law thought, that's funny. My daughter's married to a Headland. And it turned out to be my brother. That's so funny. Which is weird because when I knew him. That was him, just five years ago. Yes. After nearly 50 years of not knowing that he was gay. Extraordinary. And not knowing that he would ever have any kind of social life because he was such a hermit when he was young. And... It was, the funny thing is that, do you remember Peter Werrett? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah Peter yeah. Werrett, um, the motoring... He's a famous driver. Yes, Or a, yeah. a, a, re, a reporter or a driver TV, or a TV... TV yeah, um, yeah. talk. Yes. And yeah. Mark. Mm. Peter Werrett was like a hugely popular 
person. He he turned out to be transgender. He now, or well not now, he's dead now, I think. But he, he lived the last few years of his life as a woman. I remember that, yeah. Yeah. Mm. And he and his brother, Richard, wrote a book called Desire Lines. And the concept of Desire Lines is that if you build a, a like a children's play park, you can go two ways. You can say, okay, we're going to make it a straight path from the, the, the slippery slide to the, to the swings and another one from here to there. And it doesn't work. Nobody uses them. What the sensible way to do it, you put the swings here and the slippery slide there and the whatever here, and you wait until people make a track between them. And that's the intuitive mm. preferred track. Mm. And they wear it out in the grass and then you just make the paths along there. And people use those paths. Anyway, Peter and Richard collaborated and wrote a book called Desire Lines, and it was about their father, who was a closet transgendered person, deeply, deeply ashamed. Richard, who turned out to be a choreographer and is gay, and um, Peter, who is transgendered. It's like they wrote the story of my family. Mm, mm. Um, even to the mother, who was browbeaten and 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 um, unhappy quite quite remarkable resemblance I think the two of you have there's a bottle of red wine and a swapping of stories that needs to happen between the two of you isn't there me and my brother yeah, yeah I know there's a conversation <laughs> that needs to go on there and what a conversation it would be well he's now 74 I'm 72 it's been over 50 years since we've Spoken. I have sent emails, letters, um, just saying hello. You know, I'm I'm still here. I've had you know this marriage. And I've got these children. How are you going? No response ever. Mm. Um, lives in Cambridge. Um, yeah, we. <laughs> sometimes I think about just jumping on an aeroplane and and popping over and knocking on his door and saying, you know, here I am, as I am now, which is. Living in and as he is now, as has he, is he now. always lived as a gay man, or has he had a number of well, I don't marriages? Know. I don't or, know. Oh, you don't know. No. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He's never, um, he's never communicated anything like that. I wouldn't mind betting that he is has never married. I'm sure. I'm would I would put money on the fact that he has never had children. Um, but it would be fascinating to knock on his door and. Um, meet him as he is and I am now. We've talked a bit about the male figures in your life. Let's talk a little bit about the female figures in your life. What was the relationship like between you and your mother? What was she like? And subsequently, your father's uh, further partners. How did you go with those women that have been influences, I suppose, in your life? Well... <clears throat> At one stage, I went to a, some workshop and they said, we want you to draw three trees. One represents your mum, one represents your dad, and one represents you. And it was one of those excellent exercises where you don't think about it, you just kind of draw stuff. I drew my dad as this prickly, spiky, stunted, red and black mess of a bush that, you know, you would couldn't even think about enjoying. <coughs> Excuse me. I drew myself as a tall gum tree. And I drew my mum as this pale blue, insignificant, um, little small shrub thing. It was... Like, if you looked at the picture, you'd see the angry father, myself as I would like to be, and my mum that didn't even figure in things. She was insignificant, she was small, she was um, never social. She basically lived to keep my brother and I and my father happy and withstood my father's rage and anger and, and um, unpredictability. Um, and um, I'm, I've, I'm firm, firmly convinced that she left her life when I was 17, my brother was 19, 
and she considered that we were old enough to look after ourselves and left. So what words spring to mind when you think of her? You know, is it, uh, do you do so with affection? Do you do so with, um, you know, is there an emotion attached to that or was it such a long time ago that, um, you know, that doesn't exist anymore? The terrible thing is that until, until I was probably 30-something, my mum was the only person in the world who knew that I was, what I thought, sexually depraved, um, abnormal, um, because um, at one, I think I was age probably 13, um, I was obsessed, as I was for most of my life, with um, anything feminine clothing, um, perfume, anything, in private. And my sexual satisfaction came to a great extent from um, buying, begging, borrowing um, any kind of female clothing, from wigs to shoes to underwear to dresses, anything else. There was an incredible compulsion to actually try to express my femininity in complete secret and with enormous shame. And um, my mum one day confronted me with the fact that she had found her bathing suit under my bed. And I clearly remember the heat and the, the um, feeling when she said, what are my bathers doing under your bed? And the, 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 the embarrassment, the humiliation, the, the shock. And I remembered I said, oh, I don't know, which was a stupid thing to say. And um, nothing more was said, which really, really saddens me because that was the moment I think age 13, 14, something like that. That was the moment when my mum could have said to me, do you enjoy wearing female clothing? And I could have said, yes, mum, I do. And we could have had a conversation about not feeling as if I was in the right kind of body. Mm. And at that stage... <clears throat> it could have been the beginning of my earlier understanding of why I felt that irresistible compulsion and it could have it could have meant a much better relationship between my mum and I um, she could have even possibly helped my dad become comfortable with the fact that I was what I know now is transgendered but my mum said nothing. There was, the conversation was never opened. And I was left feeling totally ashamed, worthless, without any avenue, any way to, to, to explore this kind of thing. And there was only one person in the entire world that knew of my perversion, my shame, my secrecy. One person, my mum was the only person in the entire world who knew that I was a dirty, disgraceful human being. So she knew? You think she knew? <sighs> she knew that there was... Well, yes, she didn't... Not like, there was no... There was no concept of transgender or anything. Mm. That, it was still the old males are males and females are females. But she knew something was unusual. Mm. And to my shame, even now, when she died, I didn't know how to grieve. And I always feel, even now, I never properly grieved my mother's death. Mm. And 
even though I'm ashamed to admit it now, I can do so objectively, that it was a relief when she died. Because the only person in the world that knew that I was weird was dead. Mm. So how do, how do you grieve through a sense of relief? And I've, I've talked to more psychiatrists and psychologists and primal therapists and counsellors and everybody under the sun to try and understand that and try and come to grips with it. But um, it wasn't until I found somebody that could explain the transgender thing that um, I began to understand why I didn't grieve for my mum. So fast forward just a little bit. You said you had a few marriages. <laughs> what age did you get married the first time? Oh, goodness. Because I've always been besotted with women, girls, women. I always had at least one girlfriend at the same time, trying to keep them from knowing each other. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, I, I, I became engaged to a young lady at... I was 19, um, you met her in North Queensland? No. Uh, goodness. No, I was still at... Um, I think I was still early in teacher's training college then. I think... Or university, one of the two. Around about that age, got in, engaged. Um, had created a lovely ring with topaz and emeralds, which was our birthstones. That fell apart and she flung the ring at me and it was a rainy night and it went into tall grass. And I remember scrabbling around in the rain through this tall grass trying to find this damn ring. Anyway, um, shortly thereafter, when I was teaching in Rockhampton, met and subsequently married um, a, a, a young lady, which we were simply very happy together. Um, at that stage, um, the Vietnam was, War was on. I was about to be called up. Um, I had a vasectomy because nobody wanted to bring up children during the Cold War. That marriage eventually ended after about 12 years, um, mainly because we had nothing in common. There was no real reason to stay together, so we went off and did our different things. Um, married again had the vasectomy reversed, had two beautiful children. Mm -hmm. That marriage eventually failed because I didn't know how to be a father or a husband. I thought from watching other people on television that all you had to do was spend every hour you possibly could working to make as much money as you could, renovating the house and building the bloody tennis court and the swimming pool, mm. which meant I was never home. Yeah. And that really put the put the mockers on that marriage, so that eventually ended. Um, married a third time, and my first two wives, I still believe they knew nothing of my compulsion to express my femininity. I was very good at hiding it. You were active during that period of time in expressing that femininity, but in, just in... In complete privacy and secrecy. Yeah. I think to myself, I had little stashes of female clothing up over the roof tiles, round the back of the fireplace, <laughs> all kinds of funny little hiding places where if I found a few moments to just dress and feel a little feminine, I would. And I think to myself, those little stashes are still there. <laughs> really? Yeah. Probably, you know, when the, when those... Well, someone renovated the house and just went, honey, yeah. why, is there, why is there some stilettos and, yeah. and you know, a yeah. lovely dress behind the yeah. fireplace? It, I know, it's going to happen. <laughs> it's going to happen. Oh, and I'd love to be a fly on the wall when it happens. Uh, they, yeah, but it's yeah, still there. Great story. Like a lot of transgendered people, this compulsion to express femininity and wear mm. female clothes or shoes or whatever just... You say, we all say to ourselves, look, I'm never going to do that again. It's embarrassing, it's horrible, it's a disgusting thing to do. Throw all the stuff away, burn it all. And a week later, buying, begging, stealing, or somehow finding the first little item and then another item. It's an amazing compulsion. Mm -hmm. Anyway. What kind, of, what kind of husband were you? Um... 
That's a very useful question. I was the best... I was doing what I thought husbands should do. Purely by watching other husbands, reading about husbands, watching TV about husbands, I was... I was convinced that being a husband was about making money, really. Mm. I practiced chiropractic for 25 years and um, made as much money as I could, which means I was, I was never home. That created huge dramas and I kept building more clinics and hiring more staff because that's what you did. I didn't know what else to do. I spent masses of time with my children I used to spend an hour and a half putting them to bed after I came home from work. And um, I had a lovely, lovely um, relationship with my children to the expense of my relationship with my second wife, mm. which eventually led to a divorce and another house down the tubes. <laughs> My How old were you at this time? Oh, first marriage was about 21. Second marriage was about 33, 34. Third marriage, I was 49. And we produced two more children. But the thing is about the first two marriages, my marriage partners, so that's those two marriages, I still believe they knew nothing of my need to dress and exhibit or exhibit my fem female self. My third marriage partner, I outed myself completely to her because she had three little girls of her own um, and I didn't want to compromise their happiness. And we played with the transgender thing for a while and I met people online. And for the first time in my life, I realised that I wasn't the only person in the world to have this depraved, sexually deviant feelings. There was thousands of people. And that was when I stopped feeling like I needed to suicide. Hmm. So you'd had your first suicide, suicidal thought at sort of 15 years of age. Has that been a constant during oh. that period of time from then till 50 when you... From then, from, from that time with the chemist shop until here today sitting with you, suicide has been a part of my normal day, thinking about it every day from then till now. And it probably will be as long as I stick around. It's... Um, it's a, it's a dominant theme in my life. It's, um, I've mentioned it to GPs, psychiatrists, and everybody has said, oh, it's a dreadful way to think, you know. And I've said on a couple of occasions, if, if you, speaking to the GP or the counsellor, if you were in a submarine that was non-functional, all the power systems were down, it was sinking and you knew, you knew you were in for a terrible short future, would you not want to have a safety hatch in the submarine? A way that you knew you could press a button or turn a wheel or push a lid open and get out and with whatever breathing apparatus get to the surface? If I know that if my life ever becomes completely intolerable, I'm not afraid to use the safety hatch mm. of leaving. Mm. And I'm comforted by that. I'm happy about that because for most of my life I lived a dreadful life of chronic depression, anxiety, unhappiness, shame and secrecy. And I don't live that life anymore. Mm. But I know that if I ever get if I ever fall back into that, and some days I feel like I do, I will have the, the courage or the strength or the self-respect or whatever it takes to actually suicide. Mm. And I've worked over quite a few years 
And I've, if I've, I've got three things that I rely on to, um, to stay alive. One is that I, with, th- with um, organizations like Alcoholic Anonymous, Anonymous and organizations like that, they say one day at a time. <laughs> My favorite album is the Eagles' first farewell tour in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And um, the guy with the colorful trousers sings about one day at a time. He said, I've only been drunk once for 20 years. Mm. And I love that man. I love that song because it's one day at a time. I can, I know that I can survive reasonably happily until I go to bed tonight and it will all start again in the morning and I will stay alive this day and tomorrow I'll decide whether I'll stay alive or not the next day. And that made it go for the next 40 years, mm. as long as I live. The other thing that has made a huge difference to me. Um, I used to have a lovely psychiatrist. He's a little tiny man, came from somewhere in South Australian bush. And talking to him one day, he said, he said I, I, I used to bring up the subject of suicide because it's always been on my mind. And I said to him, you know, like, how do you, how do you, how do you deal with this stuff when you're feeling this way and thinking this way? He said, I was still Tony then, he said, Tony, your children, at that stage I had four, he said, your children will forgive you for anything you ever do. You can starve them, you can beat them, you can, you can sell them for slavery, you can do pretty much anything to your children and they will eventually, as they grow and mature, they will forgive you for it. With one exception, if you take your own life, they will never forgive themselves. Mm. They will always, for the rest of their life, think that they didn't love you enough, they didn't behave well enough, they didn't get good marks enough in their exams, they didn't... Whatever they, whatever they, they didn't, didn't do. They didn't please you. They didn't please me. Mm. They didn't please me enough or love me enough you. for me to stay alive. Mm. And from that moment, um, I know that I won't do it. it the, the, the thought is still in my mind. I've still got my safety hatch, but I won't use my safety hatch while they are around. Mm. What's life like for Claire now, I, I met you uh, probably four years ago, four or five years ago. You were like a, a breath of fresh air when you wandered into that room in, uh, in Melbourne for our, our first program. It was like, yeah. wow. Yeah. And you told some amazing stories and you performed for us that day. I remember you told your story in a way that no one else was able to tell the story. It was incredible. What's life like for you now? I have the most fabulous life. My, I, I work as a um, like patient services person in the palliative ward of a major hospital. I, I, my most important job during the day is making a nice hot cup of tea for the people who are my patients and they're actually in the process of dying. Um, I hold their hands, um, I make their beds, I bring flowers for them, I tuck them in, I smooth their foreheads and pretty much love them while they're dying and I'm often present when people are actually dying. Um, I work with some fabulous nurses and other colleagues who who I'm beautifully accepted by and loved by. Um, The whole hospital situation, I I brag a little because out of the 8,000 staff of probably Five and a half thousand of females. A couple of weeks ago, I was awarded the honour of being considered as one of the five women of the staff who are who were seen as inspirational and accept and exceptional. 
which was a huge thing, not only because I was appreciated for the work that I do, which I love, but also I was officially by the CEO was sitting there and my supervisor was sitting there and this theatre was absolutely packed with standing room only with 99% females. I was officially recognised and acknowledged as a woman. What was that moment like for you? Was it, like there's almost like the validation of your entire life in that, in that one moment. Yep. That's extraordinary. Yep. How did you feel? <laughs> I felt extraordinary. Um, I, we were each, there was five of us, five women, and after the kind of, we were given out little award, they gave us a lovely little paperweight with an inscription on it and a certificate, and each of us were asked a question, and we were given a minute to a minute and a half to respond to that question, and my question was, what does this award mean to you, Claire? And at the time, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't quite know what to say. I hadn't rehearsed it because I wanted, to, I wanted it to come from my heart. And um, I had <laughs> the majority of the audience in tears because I told them what an incredible honour it was to be seen as a worthwhile member of the staff and to be acknowledged as a woman amongst women. And somebody said there was not a dry eye, including mine, in the entire place. And um, it, was, it, was a, it was the culmination of 72 years of struggle and, and determination. And people keep coming up to me and saying, oh, we saw you, we heard you, aren't you brave? And I say, no, it's not bravery. I could not have not done it. I could not have lived the rest of my life knowing that I had pre pretended and faked it for all my life. I had to, at some stage, acknowledge who I was. So you had that, that first moment of freedom at six years of age, mm. and the second major moment of freedom at 72 years I of age. <laughs> That's a long time to work at it, wasn't it? It's a long time to work at it. Yeah. Yeah. But absolute validation in that moment. Yeah. yeah. Absolute validation. It was the most remarkable, I think I said that, the most remarkable and outstanding moment of my life. Because it's, I, I, I speak all over the place to nurses. Um, I got an email yesterday from the occupational therapist head director person asking me if I would come and talk to the occupational therapists at the hospital as a group about transgender things so that they can feel more comfortable and more sensitive to the needs of transgendered people. And I'm speaking to lots of groups and it's becoming more and more and I just love doing it. And one of the things, the things I tell, tell people is that being transgendered or being gender diverse in whichever way we are, or LGBTIQ plus ABCDEF, is not a choice. It's a biological, hormonal, biochemical, gestational fact that some people are born with male brains in female bodies or female brains in male bodies or what all those all that spectrum of people but being born like that and having that non-binary non-traditional thing is not a choice we don't choose to be trans transgendered we are transgendered the choice and the bravery is in expressing that and I'm so deeply happy that I transitioned from Tony to Claire from wearing blokey clothes and a blokey haircut to being accepted as a true female, wearing female clothing and having a female haircut. 
I, I did it within my workplace, within the staff of the hospital, with such kindness and such support and such friendship. People have given me <laughs> clothing, some of which was wearable, <laughs> jewellery, some which of which was wearable, <laughs> <laughs> and so much advice and encouragement mm. from everybody. <clears throat> yeah. It's unbelievable how well my transition has been accepted. And I'm, I'm standing up and I'm talking to people and I'm walking around and I'm wearing a, a lanyard, which is about today, which is the National Day of Trans Visibility, as like, a, like, a, like an example to the thousands and thousands and thousands of people like me and all the other varieties who would give their left kidney to do what I've done. Mm. Some of them will do it. Someone, someone will take the risks of losing family and respect and their job and their life and their health and all those kind of things, because we do. It's a dangerous, bloody path to tread. And, and, and some won't. And that's like, but we can all do it if we take that choice. Mm. And I'm so grateful to all the people through my life who have either encouraged or not discouraged me in doing that. What do, so at the end of um, all our Roses Radio podcasts, I have two questions that I ask in relation to suicide. And the first of those is what do we need to change in the way that society deals with suicide, in your opinion? In my opinion, the most useful thing that we can do as people involved in suicide prevention or, or just as human beings is to teach people one simple skill, I believe. It took me a long time to develop the self-respect and the courage to reach out. And at first, for a long time, I thought reaching out had to be to Lifeline or to Roses in the Ocean or to experts or to, you know, people who purported to be those people who can help. And for that reason, I often didn't reach out when I felt really badly because either I couldn't at that moment find somebody like a psychiatrist or psychologist or the lifeline telephone was busy or whatever it was. And I, and I, I didn't reach out or didn't find it possible to reach out at the moment. And quite recently, probably a couple of years ago, I suddenly realized I don't have to reach out to experts. I have to reach out. To other human beings. To anybody. Mm. And, I read, and, and, and I did go and see my GP and talk to him, but in the meantime, before I could get that appointment, I rang a couple of friends. And I said, look, I don't need you to solve my problems. I don't need you to give me advice. I just want you to be on the phone for five minutes while I tell you how bad I feel. And those two friends did exactly that. I didn't want anybody to solve the problems. I wanted to be bloody heard by somebody who gave a shit about me. Mm. And in, in, in that moment, I realised that from my point of view, the most important thing we can do for people to help them not to suicide is to teach them to reach out and say, it doesn't matter who you reach out to. It's not about who you reach out to. It's about sending out that help message to anybody. That's what I think would be a fabulous thing to teach people. So for someone who's grappled with the expression of their gender for the good part of 60 years, for those who are out there who are grappling with the expression of their gender, and there's many people out there who are doing so, what's your advice to them? <laughs> the only real important thing in life is the pursuit of what's called happiness. 
And it's not about, you know, having fun and going to parties and things like that. That's not, not what I mean by happiness. What I'm talking about is that inner feeling of self-respect and contentment and feeling that one is living a life of truth and honesty and reality and honouring one's own self. And, and in a lot of cases, it means making some big changes in one's life. And it's like, all right, here's me here, there's happiness, these are the things I may have to risk. All right, I'm prepared to risk my job. I'm prepared to risk my next holiday. I'm not prepared to risk my partnership with my wife or my relationship with my children. And we have to look at all the things between here and happiness that we are prepared to risk and those we're not. And then we make a decision. And those things that we can risk and we can risk losing, we, we realise how unimportant they are compared to our own self-respect and happiness and we bloody get rid of them whatever it is, those things we're not prepared to risk, we incorporate them into the happiness thing mm. so that there are, there are only the most important things in our life combined with that happiness. And if, it's, if we're prepared or if we're in a situation as I was where we're able to lose pretty much everything because I, I wasn't married, my children were... Terribly important, but I talked to them and, and they were okay with it. In my situation, my risks were low. Mm. Other people will have, will have enormous risks associated with it. Mm. But find out which are the most important items in your life and which aren't. And then find your own happiness, your contentment, your reality, your self-respect. You have a little tattoo on your wrist that says trust. Mm. Is that trusting yourself, your intuition, your instincts, trusting the journey, trusting that things will be okay at the end? All of those. Ah. All of those. Mm. Like, the, the way I see it, I'm not a religious person. I, I, I feel, I'd like to think, I choose to have this benevolent intelligence that is the world, the universe, reality, me, everything. And I, I, I choose to trust that will nurture me in whatever way I need to be nurtured through whatever I need to go through. Because otherwise, what's the point of it all? That's right. <laughs> it's been a blast. Um, I've loved having this conversation with you, um, Claire. It's everything I thought it would be, interesting, funny, wise. Um, you bring enormous experience. Um, and enormous compassion, I think, um, to your story and, and compassion to yourself, but also compassion to others um, as a result of that journey. You are a very wise and courageous and inspirational woman, and I'm, I'm pleased to have the opportunity to spend some time with you on Rose's Radio. And thank you for, um, for coming in and sharing your journey with us. Lane, I really feel privileged that we've done this, and I'm deeply happy that we've had this little session with you. Thanks. Thank you. In conclusion, we remember those we have lost to suicide and we acknowledge the suffering that suicide brings when it touches our lives. We need to provide for all people a future that inspires and empowers individuals and communities and is filled with hope and meaning. If you or someone that you know needs support, you should contact Lifeline, a phone and online crisis support network, the Suicide Callback Service, which provides professional counselling for those who are affected by suicide. Men's Line Australia, or the Kids Helpline, which works with children and teenagers from age 5 to 25, offering phone, web and email counselling and information for parents. In the event that you might like to assist the work of Roses in the Ocean and their Voices of Insight Speakers Hub, through speaking engagements in the local community, then please make contact with Roses in the Ocean on www.rosesintheocean.com.au or 
Hey, thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to bringing you other inspiring stories from those with a suicide lived experience.